back, and they said they had a fantastic time. Uh, and it got me thinking about my own time at Bible camp as a kid, um, growing up as a, as a, yeah, a little elementary, middle school kid. And, and one of my favorite games from Bible camp was this game they called uh, Romans and Christians, because of course, at Bible camp, they have a game called Romans and Christians. Um, <laughs> But so here's how the game went. So the campers were, were the Christians. We were labeled the Christians and then the counselors were the Romans. And so, uh, as the, the campers, as we were Christians, so we were on this, at this Bible camp and it was, you know, a thousand, if not more acres of, of just fun stuff. And we're in the dark and we're running around and we're all trying to find the safe spot. And the safe spot was a, was one counselor who was sitting somewhere, somewhere in that vast expanse of darkness with a flashlight and he was holding it straight up. And so if you found that guy, if you found or gal, whoever it was, sitting down there and you found that light, you would go and you would sit down next to them and you're safe. You're good to go. You've essentially won the game. You're, you've been assured of your safety going forward. However, as you're going around trying to, to find that person, there's the counselors. And the counselors are the Romans and they have flashlights. And so if they, as they go around and if they see you, if they shine their spot, their flashlight upon you, you are caught and they arrest you and they bring you back to jail. And there's some more rules and other things about that. But that was, that was the basics of it was you're running around having fun. And so all of us campers are going around and we're bumping into each other saying, have you found it? Have you found it? And of course, none of us have found it because if we did, we'd be sitting there. Right, But that light, that light gave us that assurance of safety. And so in our passage today, so John goes on to part two of this message that we started last week about how God gives us assurance of eternal life, how God, appropriately to that game, is that light that when we are with him, we are assured of eternal life. And so let's do a little bit of recap as we get into it. So first of all, what is this assurance of eternal life? And so our scripture for today is in 1 John chapter 5. We're, we're finishing it up with 1 John. We're going to start in verse 13. Um, and so I'm just going to be doing verses by verse. So if you love, I would love for you to follow along on your cell phones and your Bibles, whatnot. First uh, John's at the end of the Bible. Turn all the way back, go to Revelation, third, Jude, third, second, and then you'll get to First John. All right. So as we're, we're reading through this, thinking about what does the assurance of eternal life does. But verse 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And I would even say maybe a fuller translation of that would be, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So we ended our, our passage last week with this verse, and we were beginning it this week. Um, and this statement's kind of that closing and summary statement of, of what we studied, but also maybe of the entire book. So even back all the way in, if you compare it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, one of the, the first sermon we did on this, John writes this, We are writing these things so that our joy are complete. So at the beginning he's saying, the things we're about to write are what we want you to hear. And now he's at the end and he's saying, we have written all of these things so that you may be assured of eternal life. And if you have, and when you have that assurance, then we can, have, our joy will be complete. Our joy is that you would be assured of eternal life. That's the purpose of this entire book. And so during the book, throughout this, he's been talking about things, how like God brought us into the light. Back in chapter one, he talks about how um, God cleanses us from the light. We were in darkness, we were sin, we were stained by sin. But yet when God brings us into the light, he cleanses us of that sin, and he doesn't desire for any part of us to be left in that darkness because he wants us to be assured of eternal life and fully in that life. 
in our assurances is that no matter how many times we sin, no matter how many times we go back to that darkness, God brings us back to the light again. And when we're in that light, he will cleanse us again and again and however many times it takes. And then he gave us the testimony of the Spirit. If that wasn't enough, that, that, that testimony that he has done this for us, wasn't enough. He also gives us the testimony of the Spirit. And you see this in chapter 2 concerning the Antichrist. And in chapter 5, which we just read last week, that if we are able to say that Jesus is Lord, if you can say that, if you can confess that with your mouth, then you have the Holy Spirit. For it is only by the Holy Spirit that you are able to confess and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And lastly, and he talks about that this week, he talks about how he answers our prayer. John writes... These words. Now I gotta flip back. Here we go. In verse 14, he says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Chapter 3, verse 22, and in this verse in chapter 5, both say these types of things of how we can be assured, and, and, and because we are assured, we have that testimony of the Spirit. We know that God cleanses us of sin. He brings us into fellowship with Jesus. We know he answers our prayers, and he hears us, and we talk with him, and we walk with him, and all of those good things. All right, so God assures us of our eternal life through these things, through this fellowship that we have with him. Not only does he do these things on our behalf, not only is he, is he the God of everything, he's not some distant deity, he's here, he's with us, he's beside us, he's inside of us, he's talking and working and through us and through his power is what we, how we do everything that we do in this world. And we are assured because of that that we are in fellowship with him, not at some future date, but right now. Back when I was in grade school, um, and I guess even in high school, I guess that that would be considered grade school, uh, the teachers had this thing where before every major test, they would do a review day. Um, and for the review day, my favorite one was always Jeopardy, because Jeopardy would consist of this. They would have all the categories and whatnot, and every single little clue would be an actual question from the test, if not just a very close to actual question from the test. And so all you had to do during this review day was listen and say, would I have gotten that right? No, okay, then I better write that down and study it. And you're pretty much assured that, yes, I've got all the answers, I've got all the questions, and yet it baffled me that there were kids that were not paying attention. <laughs> they are literally giving you the answers. Why aren't you paying attention to this? I don't understand. And yet it still happened. But often we talk about this eternal life and this assurance of salvation as if it's some sort of test, right? Like we're going to go to St. Peter at the gates at the end of our life and he's going to quiz us as, as, as to what we have and, and we need to have the right answers or we need to be able to say the right things to him. Um, number one, that's not accurate at all. That's not at all what the picture of, of what actually happens. There won't be a test uh, before St. Peter at the, at the gates of hell. But not only is that not accurate, but God's already done that Jeopardy review for us. He's given us all the answers to the test. They're right here in this book. And beyond that, he's already taken the test for us. Not only has he given us the answers, he's taken the test. He got an A plus on it because he's God. And he stamped that on our forehead. And that's our assurance of salvation. That cross right here with Jesus Christ, what he did when he died for us, when he became one of us. And when he, when he died and he rose again, he took the test for us. And that is our assurance of salvation, our assurance of eternal life and our, our knowledge that we are in relationship with him. Because if we can acknowledge and believe that he did that, he is with us. He has sent his spirit to be part of us and to work in us and through us. All right. So 
if you're hearing about all this assurance of eternal life stuff and, and all of these other things, and you're not quite sure if you're there, you're hearing that you can be assured, but you're not assured maybe yourself, come talk to me. Truly, truly, I would love to talk to you about these things. Um, I don't do this job. I'm not a pastor so that I can get up here and preach on Sunday mornings. I don't, my, my goal in life isn't to be able to come once a day and to, to stand in front of however many people and, and preach. My goal, my, the reason, my passion, my desire for doing this job, and I would even say my calling for doing this job, is to talk to you guys, to work through you, to walk beside you, to work through these doubts, these questions, these fears, to help us all grow in our faith together, because I'm still growing myself. I'm only 27, and all of us are all human. I'll be growing again when I'm 80. Um, so let's do this together. Let's not just, just think, and, and, and if you have that questioning, that those doubts, those concerns, let me tell you, first of all, I've probably had them as well, and I'm probably still wrestling with them as well. Um, and I'd love to wrestle with you and, and share the things that I've learned and the things that God has taught me through a lot of really, really uh, excellent professors and, and, and mentors and pastors and, and whatnot. Um, and third, if you do come up with something that I've never heard of before, a question, a concern, or a doubt, I will take you to lunch. It'll be on me. I, I, that, that's, that's my promise. That's my guarantee. Um, one, because I want to get lunch, and two, because I'd love to talk about it. But anyway, good, moving on. All right, so if you're here, if you're here, even if you're not sure, even if you are questioning about this assurance of faith, then let me assure you of this, that God's pursuing fellowship with you because nothing happens for an accident. If you're here in this room, if you're listening or in, in, in part of these songs and sitting here, God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to be have you in the light and to show you his love and to show you what life looks like. And if God's already gotten a hold of your life, if you do have that assurance, if you can say that Jesus is Lord, well, then God has given you that assurance of eternal life. And then John says this as a result of that assurance that we shall pray. Okay, so why shall we pray? Why is that a result of of the eternal life? Let's keep reading. Let's go on into verses 14 and 15. So, Here we go. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So if we know that we have eternal life, that is, if we know we're in fellowship with Jesus, then we are continually learning and getting to know his will because his Holy Spirit is working inside of us and showing it to us throughout our lives. And as we get to know his will, we'll, we get to see the world and around us and honestly get to see just how many places where the world doesn't follow it. Because sin is a reality. Sin is something that has come and has corrupted the world and it's, it's made things different than how God created them to be. And so we talk to him about it when we see those things. And we pray to him something like, man, I really don't like this person. They are mean, they get on my nerves, they insert something here, and I have a really hard time getting along with them. But Lord, I'm knowing you're telling me that it's your will that I love your creation. And this person is, is, is made in your image, and so I want to love them. So Lord, help me love them. Or maybe it's, I've seen this group of people who are continually seeming to get a bad stroke of luck. They're continually oppressed. They're always in poverty. They can't seem to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And Lord, I know it's not your will for somebody to be suffering like this. It breaks my heart. So please help them. And we know that God hears us. 
And we know that these things are according to his will, so we know that he will give us that request. And so we bring it to him in prayer. And this is exactly the type of situation that John describes when he, when he writes the first part of verse 16. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, notice he shall ask, not he should ask, not it might ask, not that he could ask, no, he shall ask, and God will give him life. God has get, not given us the assurance of, of eternal life so that we can sit on it, so that we can be safe and we can be comfortable and we can just live out the rest of our lives. He's given this to us so that we can boldly act out of it, knowing that we already are safe, that nothing can touch that. Nothing can touch our salvation. Nothing can touch our fellowship with Jesus. And so we can boldly act while we're still in this world on behalf of that, where we see this and where we see things that aren't in life and we want to bring them out of death. And so we boldly act in that manner. Back to that Romans and Christians game. At the end of the game, everybody would kind of get together and whatnot and they'd ask so and, and we'd always be asking all of our friends so did you find did you find you find and there'd always be one or two of my friends somebody i'd made a close friendship with during that week who would be like yeah i made it and I'd be like dude why didn't you tell me why didn't you come get me and he's it, why if you knew where it was like why didn't you come find me why didn't you tell me where this was and the reasons are usually well i didn't know i could I didn't know I could leave the safe spot next to the light and go and find you. I, I, I figured that was against the rules. That would be cheating somehow to let everyone else know where the safe space was. Hmm. Or, right? <laughs> or it's, it's pretty easy, right? found it like in the first 10 minutes of the game. I figured everybody else would find it, so I didn't need to go find them. Why risk it? Why risk getting caught and being sent to jail if I could just be safe? Because I figured you would find it too. But we didn't. When we come into fellowship with Jesus, we experience what it means to be alive, to be safe, to know that that fellowship cannot be taken away. We were dead before, but in him we have life. And so in that, in that assurance, and in that knowledge of, of what it means to be alive, we then see the problems of sin and that's why we shall pray because we can't help it. God shows us the stains of darkness. He shows us how sin affects generations of family. He shows us how sin breaks community. He shows us how sin can lead us to despair, to self-harm, to suicide, to depression, And he shows us how he has life in store for each and every person that we meet. And he wants us to act boldly so that they can receive the life that he has to give as well. And so, as John writes here, we shall pray. We must pray. And intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters when we see them going down the path of sin, when when we see them in that darkness walking around in a circle and continually stumbling over that same obstacle again and again and again. And it's like, dude, why don't you just not do that? Right? Because they're in the darkness. They can't see otherwise. And so we pray for God to give them life, to show them, to bring them into the light. And so 
when you encounter that coworker that everybody doesn't like, or when you're, if you're a kid and you encounter that kid at school that bullies everybody else, or perhaps when you see that kid that always gets picked on, and whether that kid's 40 or that kid's 10, that always gets picked on, always gets outcast. For some reason, some people are always sinning against them. We shall pray in response. As the pastor and theologian John Stott writes, he says, in our own congregation, among our own people, our brothers and sisters here, when we encounter sin, we must pray. That must be our first reaction, not to go talk about it to somebody else, not to necessarily gossip about it. may need to process it with, with an elder, with a, a trusted figure, but first we must pray in response to sin. For we don't give life, God gives life. God gave us the assurance of our own eternal life so that we can go out and we can boldly bring others to life as well, not by our own power, by his And we do that through prayer whenever we see sin. So this is maybe the skeptic or the the part of me, but what about, you know, when I hear that, I ask the question, what happens, what, what about when nothing happens? What about when I pray and I don't see God answering that request or a long time has passed and still that seems to be a problem that hasn't been solved? Perhaps you're in the same boat as me, but I have people that I've been praying for for years. And I still haven't seen them come from sin that bring, puts them in the realm of death all the way up over into life. And it hurts. And those doubts about prayer and about myself come up. And I think, well, maybe prayer doesn't work. Maybe I'm not praying enough. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe there's something about me that God's not hearing this prayer and not answering it because of it. And then we run into the end of verses 16 and 17, and and John writes these things, and they are hard words for me to to hear and to read, and they were hard to, to study this week. He writes this, There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And that makes me bring a whole realm of doubts. And so let's address this because this this verse is hard. And let me tell you, it was hard to try to understand and study and figure out how to how to bring this to you as well. Um, because there's no consensus on what this is mean, on what John's writing. There's no one answer that everybody has brought themselves to that this is specifically what John is saying. So if you would allow me, I'm going to put forth what I've come to, what I've settled on, what I believe God has led me to after reading numbers of commentators doing a lot of work and a lot of wrestling and a lot of praying about it. Um, And if you disagree, that's fine. I'd love to have a conversation about it. But here we go. When John's writing this, first of all, I think the way it's translated is a very good translation that it's saying there is sin. We're not talking about one particular sin in in general. It's talking about there is sin, and, and sin's undefined here. He's not saying in history, in back 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 in history, sometimes the Catholic Church has defined these as the the mortal sins, talking about murder or adultery or suicide. 
and said that those are the sins that lead to death and there's no coming back from them. And I don't think that there's anywhere that that comes into play in this verse. He's not saying there's one particular sin that leads to this. So, and also, that would be directly contradictory to everything John has written before. In First John 1, 7, he writes how, let's go read it because the words are a whole lot better than my paraphrase. First John 1, 7, he writes this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. All of it. That doesn't mean there's any one particular sin that Jesus' blood can't cleanse from. It cleanses from all sin. So when he writes this in chapter 5, he, there is not one particular sin he's writing about that Jesus' blood can't cleanse us from. Jesus' blood can cleanse us from everything. I, I really want to emphasize that because I hear so many people coming in with that thought of, of suicide as automatically condemnation. That is not, not true. All right, so then going on, observing this, that John is not forbidding prayer in this matter. He's not saying you can't pray, you shouldn't pray. He's just saying I, 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 it's not wise. And why is it not wise? Why is it not wise to, to pray about this? Well, because it's contrary to the will of God. And this type of instruction has happened before in the Bible. Back in, in Exodus, God tells Moses he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He tells him he's going to do that. It's not, there's no use praying for this because God's will is that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened so that Israel would be freed and God's name would be shown to be powerful and his favor would be shown to be upon the Israelites and everyone would know of the testimony of, of God because of that and through that his will was that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. That's a hard passage to wrestle with. Another one was in, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, verse 16. God tells Jeremiah, don't pray for Israel because I won't hear you. Because in that context, Israel had known God, had turned from him, had profaned his name, and all of the nations were looking at Israel and saying, oh, this is your God and this is how you act? I don't want anything to do with him. And they tried to deceive and lead astray all of the people who stayed true to God and tried to follow him within their nation to kill them, to put them in prison, to enslave them, to whatever. And he said, enough. Don't pray for them because they have so hardened themselves that your prayers will not save them. My will is not for them to be turned. And in the context of this book, right, when John's writing, he's writing mainly against false teachers. People who were once a part of the church, who, who experienced the fruits of the Spirit, who turned their back on Jesus profaned his name and tried to deceive and lead astray people who were still following him. These were people who knew Jesus, who knew the fruits of the Spirit. They experienced that community firsthand. And not only did they say, I don't know about that. I, I, this wasn't a doubt. This was a no. And I'm going to try to deceive and destroy them. And I believe that's kind of what John has in mind here, one of the, the people that he's been praying for has not seen any fruits from that prayer and doesn't believe that there would be fruits because God's will, as it has aligned in the past, lines up with that people. In each of these cases, right, God has made it explicitly clear that his will is not for those people to turn. And it's not because of one thing in particular. There's no one sin that we can point to to say, yep, they did this, and therefore we shouldn't be praying for them. 
thinking in, in terms of some of the Bible stories. If you look at King Saul and King David, King Saul's sin compared to King David's sin was nowhere close. King David sinned so much more, and his sins seemed so much worse than Saul's. And yet, Saul was the one who never came back to God into full fellowship with him. So there's no one sin. I really want to emphasize that. There's no one sin that we can point to and say, I shouldn't pray for that person because they've done that. No. Because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all sins. And so unless you hear it from God himself, I wouldn't advise saying that I shouldn't pray for this person. And that's a pretty high bar. I think uh, the, the, the pastor George Finley, who's a professor um, at a seminary, he summarizes this verse and really puts it into context well. He says this, he says, The apostle here has made the exception to the gracious rule. Ask and it shall be given to you. That was the rule that we heard in the previous verses. And here John makes the exception. And he makes that exception which truth requires. An exception which probably his own deep experience of life of prayer has compelled him to admit. But he gives us no criteria of the sin that is beyond forgiveness. He leaves it wrapped in the mysteries which surround the throne of eternal judgment. And I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. When you're unsure, if you think I should probably pray for this person or, or, or maybe I should pray for this person, do it. Absolutely do it. And unless you hear clearly from God that his will is not for you to pray for that person, continue to pray for that person. Continue to pray for them to be brought from death to life. Because God's given us the assurance of eternal life. And I want to come back to that as the main emphasis and hopefully what you get out of this. I wanted to tackle that hard bit because it's hard and if I didn't, we'd all know it, right? But the main emphasis here is that God has given us that assurance of eternal life. And because of that assurance, he says that we shall pray for anyone that we see, any brother, any sister, anyone around us we see that is sinning so that they can be brought to life because God gives life. And so in answer to our our question, so why shall we pray? What shall we do? Or what does this assurance of life mean? It means that we must intercede on behalf of others. I'm going to end with this quote, and from again from George Findlay. It's long, but I think it's beautiful. He says, he says this, Men and women are struggling all around us and suffering. They are battling with fierce temptation. Enduring agonies of doubt, they are caught in the storms of passion or they're lost in the mists of error. You see the light and know the will of God. You have access, you, each one of you, have access to the Father by the Spirit of His truth and love then surely you will speak to him on their behalf. And your whole strength of faith will be put forth in sympathetic intercession. If you have indeed the mind of Christ, if you are in union with Christ, which we believe you are, if you are in fellowship with him, you have been united with him in his death and in his resurrection, then you are joined with the Lord in one spirit. This work of the mediator has become your occupation. Your occupation, our occupation, is to intercede on behalf of the world that is caught in the death of sin so that God may give them life. Amen. Let's pray.
dear Lord. Lord, in the times of doubt and of questioning and of fear, we ask that you would continue to minister to us and give us assurance. And in those times, and Lord, in which we can freely say that, Lord Jesus, you are my Savior, then bring forth the prayer from our lips. Let our hearts overflow with your love for the sin that we see around us, that the people of your creation may be brought to life. And Lord, when we see it, May we call it out and bring it up to you in prayer. And may you give them life. Honor our requests as you say you will. And we pray this by the blood of Jesus and by your power and through the Holy Spirit. Amen.